Chapter 24 of The Romance of Piracy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of Piracy by Edward Kebble Chatterton. Chapter 24 Chance and Circumstance. The brig's skipper had been eyeing Smith for some time and now claimed acquaintance. But although his face was familiar to Smith, he could not guess the former's name. It surprised the brig's captain to be told this was a pirate ship, and on reaching the corsair's deck and being asked in a rough tone for his name, Smith heard the name Cook, and then recollected that he was slightly acquainted with the mariner. With more than a little tact, he now claimed Cook as his cousin, and begged the pirate that he would not maltreat him. In this request, Smith succeeded, on condition that Cook gave information as to what amount of money and cargo the brig had on board. Thereupon, the man handed Smith the bills of lading, from which it was seen that the ship carried nothing but rum. Cook was questioned as to the other brig still in sight, and replied that she was either a transport with troops on board, or else she was the brig Victoria, from Black River, Jamaica. He thought, more probably, she was the former, but on taking another look at her, changed his opinion in favor of the Victoria. Chase was therefore given. Now, the name of Cook's ship was the Industry, and her crew were at once employed on board the schooner, and ordered to the corsair's guns. Rapidly, the Victoria was overhauled, and now the long gun was fired across her bows, which the brig answered by hoisting her colors and backing her mainyard. Smith and a pilot were sent aboard her. The brig's officers and part of her crew were, as before, sent off to the schooner, and the newest capture was steered to follow the corsair as she ran into the land near Cape Blanco but a change in the weather came, and instead of the clear, bright atmosphere, there followed a dense haze with rain. There was, for a time, almost a panic on the prize, as the breeze freshened and the ship sped on, for suddenly, immediately astern, out of the mist, appeared another schooner, coming up fast and in the wake of the corsair. The man at the wheel was a bad steersman, and sheared the vessel about a good deal, as the wind was free, steering sails were set by the pilot's instructions in order to get away from the pursuer. One of the pirate's crew was pacing the deck with rage and in a state of nervousness, lest the stranger should be a man of war. He cursed the steersman for his bad helmsmanship, and this only made the sailor more confused and to steer a more erratic course than before. The corsair, therefore, turned round upon Smith and swore that, if the latter did not make the helmsman handle the ship better, he would take his knife and kill the Englishman. Smith, accordingly, did what he could, and later on in the day, as the weather fined down, the stranger was seen, with great relief to the pirate, to be no ship of war. Indeed, it was chiefly the corsair's bad helmsmanship which made it seem that any chase was occurring. Every hour... Smith's hopes for escape were being accentuated by a treatment that was barely endurable. One of the projects that now arose in his mind was a daring scheme. 
embracing the intention of killing the pilot and the other members of the schooner's crew, and then take the ship to New Orleans. To have cheated the schooner's captain of the Victoria would have been a fine thing, for the rest of the brig's crew would certainly have assisted Smith. However, the corsair's skipper was far too wide awake for any game of that sort, and at dusk the corsair's gunner was sent aboard the Victoria while Smith was ordered back to the schooner. The prisoners were sent below into the hold, and sentries placed on the hatchways, making escape impossible. All three ships had come to anchor outside the reef, consisting of the Corsair, the Industry, and the Victoria. But later on, Captain Cook was permitted to get the Industry underway, as her cargo of rum was not deemed worth the Corsair's attention. The Victoria and the schooner, however, proceeded towards Rio Omedia, for the Vittorio's cargo of coffee was distinctly worth having. The schooner was certainly no dull sailor, and on the way she outran the Vittoria by a long distance and soon reached her port. Hour after hour went by, and as the Vittoria had not arrived the next morning, the pirate began to be anxious. A few hours later, a boat was seen rowing towards the schooner, containing that portion of the pirate's crew that had been left aboard the Vittoria, so it was then presumed on board the schooner that the brig had been recaptured and then abandoned. But what had happened was that, on sighting again the ship seen the day before, which had been supposed to be a man of war, they had become panic-stricken and, fearful of being captured prisoners, had preferred to run the Vittoria onto the reef and abandon her. The reader will rightly imagine that this information did not please the choleric corsair. But a little later on, the Vittoria was lightened of her cargo, floated off the reef, and taken into Rio Medias, where also the pirate schooner arrived. There is reason to believe that the British Admiralty was somewhat remiss in those days in their duty of policing the seas of the West Indies, having regard to the number of pirates which were known to harass British shipping. It even became a joke among the pirates, who would laughingly remark that naval officers preferred to spend their time amusing themselves at Havana rather than seek out these wasps of the sea. However, as it happened, just when the Victoria had been floated and taken into harbor, the Jamaica fleet was observed under sail, and once more the pirates were afflicted with nerves. They therefore deemed it best to make the poor Victoria resemble a wreck, and she was for a second time drawn up on to the outer edge of the reef. Smith, for his own part, was smarting under the British neglect which could tolerate this sort of thing, for at the head of the Jamaica fleet he could espy a British man of war, and although she was passing within a league of the Victoria and the schooner, yet no notice was taken of either. The pirates waited till the fleet had passed on their way, and then once more the Victoria was hauled off the reef and taken to a mud bank. A couple of coasting vessels arrived from Havana, and speedily unloaded into their holds the rest of the Victoria's coffee, to the great profit of the schooner's captain. A week later, the schooner was joined in harbor by the arrival of another piratical schooner, 
whose skipper asserted that he had successfully plundered three British ships. No one who has any knowledge of the depredations that were carried on at this time can deny that the life of a sea robber was, if exciting, at least remunerative to the interested parties. Like the old smugglers, the work was carried on in a business-like manner, with capitalists at the back of the concern. The principle on which this systematic piracy was conducted may be described as follows. The Corsair captain would agree with the owner of the ship to put guns, muskets, and everything else necessary on board the pirate ship. This would be done with secrecy at Havana, and the owner was probably a supposedly respectable citizen. The ship would then put to sea in charge of a master on the pretense that she was bound for a neighboring port. But when night came on, she would let go anchor not many miles farther on and close to the shore. The Corsair captain would now row off to her, take over the command, and send the master ashore. As soon as the latter reached Havana, the owner would complain to the governor that while his ship was at sea, she was attacked by pirates and seized. The master would then be brought as a witness to prove this assertion, and the story would be generally believed. And as it was known beforehand that the naval authorities would not show much activity, the owner might content himself with the knowledge that his ship was away earning handsome dividends as a pirate without interference on the part of the government ships. But on rare occasions, the latter did bestir themselves, and it happened that whilst Smith was captive on board the schooner in Rio Medias, news came that the governor of Havana was about to adopt hostile measures against the pirates. Lumsden's narrative had not improbably something to do with this, and it was reported that five gunboats were to come down inside the reef within the next five days, and the magistrate, Serafina's father, was ordered to render every assistance in his power. It should be mentioned that, although the magistrate had up till now been visiting the schooner to have his wounds dressed in the cabin by Smith, yet the latter was no longer allowed ashore, and now that the schooner's captain had been told by the magistrate this warning news of the approaching naval advent, the former deemed it best to put to sea and cruise in the vicinity of Cape St. Antonio for an indefinite period. The visits of the magistrate had become even more frequent, since, in acting out his double life, he must needs keep the corsair fully up to date regarding the movements of the gunboats. Serafina also used to come on board with him, and was able to smuggle the intelligence to Smith that the plans for escape were being pressed forward and a new guide had been engaged. The reader will like to know what became of the ill-starred Victoria before we pass on. This fine ship, after being so badly used and ignominiously cast upon reef or mudbank, was now taken in hand by the magistrate, who, fearing that her presence when the gunboats visited Rio Medias might provoke awkward questions, had her destroyed. But in the meantime, a change was coming over the schooner, and something important was about to happen. First of all, a certain amount of ill-feeling began to arise, generated by the suspicion that the pirate captain 
had secreted large sums of money for himself in the sharing of the prizes. The ship was, therefore, cleft into two discordant parties, and the differences were only settled by the arrival from Havana of the two owners of the ship, or capitalists. But still a more important incident occurred, which has a potent influence on the rest of Smith's career. For at last, the pirate captain himself fell ill and was attacked by fever. It is significant in everyday life that he who is a bully is also a coward, and this brutish man who had terrorized and tortured others was now positively frightened that he would die. The pirate therefore sent for Smith, and such was his fear of succumbing that he promised the Englishman his liberty if he should succeed in curing him. But Smith had lived too long aboard the schooner to have much trust in any promise from a man of that character, and he resolved to take whatever advantage he could of this illness to make his escape, so long hoped for and planned a reality. With no little resource, then, the Englishman insisted on confining the pirate to his cabin. The next afternoon it chanced that a couple of fishermen came aboard and exchanged their cargo of fish for a consignment of spirits, and as the evening turned out wet and stormy, they decided to remain on board. The time was spent very pleasantly with the pirate crew, and there was no lack of alcohol. As the evening went on, every man became intoxicated, and so the watch was neglected. Smith realized that here at last was his grand opportunity. The only watchful man aboard was the fever-stricken captain. So, in order to settle him, Smith, in preparing the sick man's mess of arrowroot, was careful this time to add a quantity of opiate. He also caused him to drink a liberal amount of wine. The result was that, at midnight, the captain was fast asleep. Quietly and carefully, Smith crept up on deck. There was no one there. Everyone was deeply wrapped in slumber. There was not a sound anywhere except the roar of the sea, the howling of the wind in the rigging, and the slatting of the rain against the ship. It was a dirty night, with not a star visible in the whole heaven, but the angry storm-rent clouds scudding across the ark. Smith seized his bag, into which he had been careful to place his navigating instruments and some biscuit. Then, once more, he mounted the companion ladder with the stealth of a cat and crept aft to the schooner's stern, where the fisherman's canoe was made fast. With his heart thumping inside him and in trepidation, lest the slightest noise might betray him, he let himself down the painter into the canoe, cut the rope, and, in order to avoid making a sound, allowed the craft to drift for some way with the current. When once so far away as to be beyond hearing, he got the little ship trimmed, set the sail, and began to steer for where he imagined Havana lay. Then, committing himself to God, he held on his course as the frail craft sped on through the darkness. Next morning, he found himself forty miles away from the schooner's anchorage, so already he had obtained a fair start. Throughout the whole day it blew from the southwest, which was a fair wind, and this was supremely fortunate, 
for in those regions a breeze from that point of the compass is rare. All day long, and through the following night, he was sailing, and never a ship, pirate, or merchant, or man of war came into sight. With many an anxious look over his shoulder, he glanced astern to see if he were being followed, but no sail came into sight. There was a big sea running, and it was an adventurous voyage for so small a packet, but Smith was no novice at seamanship. Night and day did he keep her at it, and then, on his second morning out, at six o'clock, he came running into the port of Havana, very fatigued with the nervous and physical strain, but a free man again, and safe. As he was entering, his eyes fell on a schooner lying in the harbor. A man was walking the deck whose face Smith knew. Running alongside, he found it was a Captain Williams, with whom he had been acquainted in America some years before. So, in a few minutes, Smith was allowed to clamber on board, received a hearty welcome, and was refreshed with food. Then he turned in for a sleep, and, feeling better thereafter, proceeded ashore. But he had not gone far, when whom should he encounter but one of the crew belonging to the pirate? So soon as the latter saw Smith, he rushed off, and presently returned with a Spanish officer and a guard of soldiers who promptly arrested Smith as a pirate. The reader will instantly realize that the schooner's captain had, on hearing of Smith's escape, taken measures to be avenged, and the distance could be covered from Rio Medias to Havana as well by land as by sea. But after such an exciting passage in a small boat, the meeting was sheer bad luck for the Englishman. The officer had Smith thrown into prison, and for two days he was kept in a dark dungeon and then brought before the judge. An interpreter named Payne was employed, who proved to be an unprincipled Irishman. He told Smith that Lumsden had already made every particular known, but at this juncture the harbor master came forward and declared that Lumsden had stated that Smith was detained forcibly. The result was that, after a few weeks' detention, Smith was brought before the governor and subsequently surrendered to the British admiral of the Jamaica station. The rest of the story is quickly told. Had this been romance and not real life, it should have ended by Smith meeting again with Serafina, marrying her and living happily ever after. As a fact, he never saw that lady since the occasion when we last mentioned her. After being taken on board the flagship Cybele, the ship eventually crossed the Atlantic and arrived off the Isle of Wight. He was now put into irons again, and in the same ship continued his voyage to Deptford. Thence he was sent to London and examined before the magistrate of the Thames Police Court, who committed Smith to Newgate. On the 19th of December, 1823, he was tried before the High Court of Admiralty on a charge of piracy with seizing the ship Victoria, the property of Hyman Cohen and others, and stealing 636 barrels of coffee, value 5,000 pounds, and 100 barrels of coffee, value 1,000 pounds, and also with seizing the ship Industry, 
on the high seas on 7th August, 1822. Several seamen and other witnesses were called by the prosecution who deposed to the active part Smith had taken in their capture. Smith, in his defense, detailed the compulsory nature of his piratical actions and declared that he would never have partaken in the unlawful booty had it been within his choice. He recounted with much feeling the circumstances of his captivity and the tortures which he had been forced to endure. He also called about twenty witnesses who testified to his bravery and humanity and excellent character generally. Among these were Captain Hayes, commander of the ship on which Smith had for some time been mate, also his brother, John Smith, an officer in the Royal Navy, but a Miss Sophia Knight, a prepossessing lady, who stated that she had for some time past been engaged to marry Aaron Smith, went into the witness box. This lady's charm of manner, together with her attacks of bitter weeping, which also affected the prisoner, so overcame the jury that they acquitted Smith, so that if he had been prevented from marrying Serafina, he was now free to fall into the arms of Sophia. Subsequently, Smith went to sea again, but before doing so, he wrote an account of his amazing adventures to justify himself in the eyes of the world and to prove that he was no pirate. This narrative appeared in the year 1824, and it is from his own story that I have taken this account of a real romance among the pirates of the sea. End of chapter 24 Recording by Linda Johnson